This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Conspiracy Show. My name is Don Jeffries. I'm filling in for the great Richard Serrett. Tonight he's away in Greece and he'll be back on the show on Sunday, November 7th. Next week, a special guest host, documentary filmmaker, student of Bible prophecy, Ali C. Aditan, will be filling in with a special guest, Jonathan Kahn, New York Times bestselling author, to discuss his book, Harbinger 2, The Return. If you have not heard of me, you're not familiar with me, again, I'm Don Jeffries, and I'm a bestselling author of several books, including Hidden History, Survival of the Richest, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 and 1963, and Bullyocracy. You can find my writings on Substack at donaldjeffries.media, and you can find my blog at donaldjeffries.news. Tonight we have a a couple of guests for you. In the first hour, uh, we'll have investigative reporter at large, Janet Phelan. In an hour or two, we're going to have former employee blackjack dealer Gino Minari, who will take us back to the heyday of Las Vegas and the storied history of the legendary Dunes Hotel and Casino. So let's talk to Janet Phelan. She's been on the trail of biological weapons and genesis since the new millennium. Her book on the pandemic, At the Breaking Point of History, How Decades of U.S. Duplicity Enabled the Pandemic, has just been published by Try and Day. Her articles on this issue have appeared in the Activist Post, New Eastern Outlook, InfoWars, and elsewhere. Educated at Grinnell College, UC Berkeley, and the University of Missouri Graduate School of Journalism, Janet jumped ship and since 2004 has been writing exclusively for independent media. Her articles previously appeared in the Los Angeles Times, We Magazine, Orange Coast Magazine, the Long Beach Press-Telegram, the Santa Monica Daily Press, and other publications. She is also the author of the groundbreaking expose Exile and two books of poetry. She resides abroad. Janet, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. So let, let's talk. First of all, I'm always interested in people who uh, had a mainstream platform or were writing for it, and then it says you jump ship. So when uh, I imagine you just did, you just become disillusioned with uh, the mainstream media, or what caused you to enter the the waters where uh, people like me have resided for a long time? Well, um, there were particular events which took place in my life starting around 2001 which um, shocked me to my core and convinced me 
that the world we were living in was not the world that it purports to be. And um, without going into a lot of detail about those events, which involved a murder, a cover-up of a murder, and quite a bit of drama, um, I'll just mention that in 2014, um, I published a book about those events entitled Exile. So um, I was uh, completely convinced that things were not as they appeared to be, and I set out to try to figure out what they were. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so great. Well, I mean, we're going to be talking mostly, I think, about your your new book, uh, At the Breaking Point of History, How Decades of U.S. Duplicity Enabled the Pandemic, and I was able to read through it and uh, found some very interesting parts. And it's, it's more, about much more than the pandemic. You kind of go into a, a lot of... Uh, corruption within the medical and what I call the medical industrial complex. And, and you raised one point. What I, what I found most fascinating about the book was uh, I thought nobody but me had ever noticed it. But you mentioned in there how uh, uh, politicians, especially presidents, how they don't ever seem to die of cancer. I, you know, I, I actually – I remember writing about that a long time ago. So I think we kind of independently arrived at that same uh, – you want to talk about that a little bit first and then we'll talk about the rest of the book. Well, sure. Um, I believe that chapter is called something like Cancer, Cancer Everywhere, but not in the presidential suite. Yes, yes. And it's actually pretty, it's not that difficult to determine the statistics on this. Uh, the statistics of people who, in the general population, who die of cancer. And then you take and look at the world leaders, and you find that, generally speaking, they simply don't. Uh, particularly if you're looking at presidents, vice presidents, and uh, leaders of NATO-related countries. They simply don't die of cancer. Now, why is that? Is there something in their, in their genetics that makes them immune? I doubt that. So I came to the conclusion that it was entirely possible that there was a cure and that it was being, shall we say, bogarted. Yeah, well, I, I think I think you're exactly right, and I, yeah, I don't think you raised that in there. But I would also question: uh, no president has ever dropped dead of a heart attack in the White House either, which you know happens in the outside world. It's been happening for decades. I find that a little strange as well. Well, that's something else to look into. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> Just an idea, but let, so the so the idea for this book. Okay, I, I mean, I and I'm kind of independently writing. I don't know if I'll when I'll ever publish it, but I'm I'm kind of writing something about the the, the pandemic or the pandemic, whatever you want to call it. So it, it looks like we're we're kind of looking at this the same way with the dubious statistics and uh, you know how exactly how deadly is this thing and has it ever been isolated? So how, when did you get the idea to try to to study? Uh, the, I mean, obviously, I guess because you're being uh, subjected to the same things we are. We all shut down and we're losing our civil liberties. Is that what inspired you? Well, when the pandemic hit, um, as you can probably see from the trajectory of the book, um, it's something that I've been predicting uh, for some time now. And it became it had become very clear to me that a pandemic was planned. And the only question was, when was it going to be released? So uh, what I attempted to do with the book was to... Uh, trace the evidence back to, well, certainly back to 2001, and in some cases, 
prior uh, to show that um, the U.S.'s, particularly the U.S.'s activities, reeked of pandemic planning. Um, the book doesn't go so much into uh, Event 201, which I believe just happened recently, right before the pandemic, but the book kind of starts on the trail with uh, changes in the USA Patriot Act uh, that after the attacks of September 11th and, of course, the anthrax attacks. And there is a uh, almost never discussed section in the USA Patriot Act, Section 817, which is the expansion of the biological weapons statute in which the U.S. changed their own domestic bioweapons laws to give uh, the U.S. government itself immunity from violating its own biological weapons laws. Now, that was a shocking change, and it was not reported by the media. So that's kind of where uh, my rabbit hole started with uh, looking at the, uh, the, the evidence that uh, something uh, was going on in the background about bioweapons that would probably result in a pandemic. Well, we certainly see, uh, obviously, Anthony Fauci was basically predicting it. Uh, we had um, uh, Bill Gates and I think several other people. I mean, were, everybody seemed to be saying, you know, this is, this is inevitable. And I, I you know, remember questioning the Times that why would you think a pandemic was inevitable? We really haven't had a pandemic that could be considered something like this since the Spanish uh, flu in 1918. I mean, all the others, I mean, did, did, was how much of the population even was really affected by, and they may have declared a pandemic, was nothing like this. You didn't see lockdowns, you didn't see uh, mass mandates or any of the other madness that we've seen for the last year and a half. Why do you, I mean, that's, to me, that's really, really strange when you get that kind of predictive programming in the parts of politicians where they all were saying, this is inevitable. You know, we're going to have this and we have to do something. How do we handle it? Right. Well, the, the, the cries of this is inevitable um, started long before uh, Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates were talking about this. As, as discussed in the book, um, I had the opportunity to interview Randall Larson, who was the head of the uh, uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction Center in D.C., um, also, who, there were several senators who were involved with the center as well, and all of them were singing to the choir, we're going to have a pandemic soon, we're going to have a pandemic soon. Well, um, when I spoke with Randall Larson, I found his verbal, which is actually discussed in the book, by the way, this whole chapter on this uh, interview with Randall Larson, I found his verbal behavior to be absolutely off the charts. Um, he, he, he seemed to be making it up as he went along. He was concerned about food security. He got really concerned about peanuts, but he wasn't sure where the peanuts were manufactured, but he knew the pandemic would come in on the peanuts. I mean, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so uh, there, and, and there were a number of others who started chiming in, particularly began to focus on 2013 as the projected date for the pandemic um, 
to suddenly occur. Now, there may be reasons uh, why that 2013 date was uh, so favored. There may be reasons why this didn't happen in 2013, which is also, I believe, discussed in the book. Um, nevertheless, um, it became clear that uh, not only did the U.S. change its domestic legislation to give itself immunity should it be involved in biological weapons work, but it also began, the U.S. began heavily to lie to the international community about its activities. So uh, the whole situation became more and more alarming to me. So when the pandemic hit, I mean, it, it was a natural for me to put this book together. That's a very long-winded answer to your question. No, well, that's interesting. And, and I, I like the way you, you incorporated it into a historical timeline. And I said the, the thing that really jumped out at me was the thing about uh, presidents and cancer. You, you kind of threw a bunch of uh, you know, other things and kind of drew it together into what we see now, and this was kind of, but I mean, the growth of the medical industrial complex, which I, I worked for in IT for my entire adult life, so I saw it from the inside, I'm, I'm not a big fan of it, and uh, now we're, we're seeing how it's in all its bloom, I mean, this is, this is medical tyranny, and uh, the, the fact that we're being ruled like this, I mean, what are your thoughts on what we've come to now, where you, I don't know if, if you're like me, but I haven't been vaccinated, uh, you know, I'm on the verge of being a second-class citizen here. I, I, I'm worried that I'm going to have second, I'm going to have separate restrooms here. We're going to go back to Jim Crow days. I mean, what what do you think about the 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 fact of why? How come my body, my choice doesn't apply to us? Well, um, yeah, I understand that Canada is is quite a bit more draconian than even the U.S. in terms of. Yeah. those sorts of mandates, um, it seems pretty clear to me that pressure is being applied from every possible direction to make sure that people do get vaccinated. Now, when you look at the vaccine uh, statistics on VAERS, uh, the CDC Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, you start to get a little nervous. Um, hundreds of thousands of injuries reported. Yes. Um, uh, tens of thousands of deaths. You know, what's what's the big deal about a virus that has such a uh, allegedly low mortality rate? Mm -hmm. I think it's like 2.2% or something. So um, one... What, what, what I try, tried to do with the book was to show that there was a longevity of efforts um, by the U.S. government to, um, to, to launch a biological weapons attack. Now, I got a question for you. How would you know the difference between a pandemic or a biological weapons attack? How would you know the difference? I, I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> well, we would know if we're told. Okay, if we're told that somebody... Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's it. Somebody ate a sick bat in Wuhan and the whole world got sick. Okay, that's the story. Well, um, I think the story is a bit more complicated than that. And given the efforts by the U.S. to um, 
Well, I mentioned uh, lying to the international community. Um, and I'd like to go into that a little bit more in depth, if possible. Um, the U.S. Oh, there goes the dog. Oh, that's okay. Um, it's live radio. <laughs> okay. Not my dog. I wish I could do something about it. Um, the U.S. has obligations under an international treaty known as the Biological Weapons Convention. And uh, pursuant to those obligations, the U.S. is required to report any biological weapons activity, uh, lab activity, changes in laws uh, to the convention at large. Uh, well, the U.S. did not report this very problematic Section 817. And not only did they not report it, they actively lied to the convention in order to mislead them as to the nature of U.S.'s biological weapons laws. So the further down the rabbit hole I went, the more I saw that there was activity that looked very suspicious. And, um, and it brings us to where we are now. So if this, hasn't, if this does not have a straightforward beginning, if this has a root um, which has been just littered with lies and cover-ups and so forth, how in the world can we trust what we're being told now? No, I think that's the, the big issue. Is that I and I. That's what I tell people all the time in my writing. Is why would you, why would you trust these people? First of all, we know we know they have lied to us from the very beginning. You know, I'm sure you've seen the CDC directives to hospitals back in last April, April 2020, that told hospitals to list the cause of death as COVID, even when tests yeah. were not available or inconclusive. And we know that. Uh, uh, the, the, the CDC basically has told us what's going on. They, they're including presumed cases, which means they weren't tested in their numbers. So their numbers are meaningless. But I, I don't know why anybody would – and the science, the science of you know walking into a restaurant with a mask, but you go to your table and you can take it off, or, or walking up to a, a plexiglass that is open at the bottom and on the sides, and that, that's supposed to protect – I mean, wh- how are people looking at this and, and not questioning it? Well, you know, I think more and more people are questioning it, and I think the value of my book is that it lays the groundwork for a whole lot more questions. And uh, so this is where uh, I I actually, this was my intention in putting out the book. Um, As you know, as we get towards the end of the book, uh, the pandemic section, I start to talk about other delivery systems, which could very well result in deaths that could be uh, um, attributed to a pandemic, which have nothing to do with the pandemic whatsoever. And so when you take the weight of the evidence, you know, the, the repeated lies by the US to international bodies, not only to the Biological Weapons Convention, but also to the Chemical Weapons Convention and to the 1540 Committee at the UN, which is supposed to be overseeing uh, weapons of mass destruction activity. When you look at all of this together and then you you realize there are other delivery systems, then what we've got is, you know, a whole lot of hooey. <laughs> That's a very polite way of putting it, hooey. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely 
It's definitely not not to be believed, and and what I really resent it when they they, they talk about the people that are are skeptical of this, uh, like us, and and they say that you know we're we're not trusting science. I mean, this is this is the most absurd science I've ever seen. I, I don't know if you I, I drive around and I see people in in cars by themselves wearing a mask, and I I, re- I just want to stop them and say just explain what's going on here. What what is the you know what are you what are you doing? What's the science here? For this, and I see it all the time. Well, you know, science is supposed to be a process. It's a process right. um, by which uh, hopefully truth is arrived at. It is not uh, something that is spouted from a uh, uh, an employee of a very problematic federal agency. Um, science is a process. So I welcome, you know, science. Uh, I welcome scientific discussions and 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 a dialogue. But when people say, "Well, I follow science, so therefore I'm wearing a mask," then you know you have to ask you have to ask what kind of science are they following? They're following mandates. They are obedient to dictates. They're not involved in science. Exactly. And I, I think you go into that in the book that man, mandates are not laws and people just kind of parrot this word mandate. What does that mean? I mean, that's, you know, anybody can say mandate. I mean, that's not, it's, you're, the laws are supposed to be passed and that's not happened here. Well, the music's coming up. We got to take a commercial break. We'll be right back with more Janet Phelan after these words. Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And welcome back to the Conspiracy Show. That's Donald Jeffries filling in for Richard Sherrod, who is away in Greece, and we'll be back on November 7th. We're talking with Janet Phelan about her eye-opening new book, At the Breaking Point of History, How Decades of U.S. Duplicity Enabled the Pandemic. So, Janet, um, Let's talk. So basically, uh, again, you go over into the history of how you believe. Uh, why don't you just briefly tell us how you you think what led inexorably to this pandemic? You said this was this was years or decades in the making. So within the last, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Bill Gates was it Agenda 201 or whatever last year. It basically had like a drill that was simulating this. This was October of 2019, right before that. What, what was that all about? That just seemed to me to be eerie. If it, had, it could not possibly not have been connected that they had a, a drill, all these important people led by Get the Gates Foundation, simulating something that was going to happen within a few months. What, what was that all about? Yes, indeed, it was eerie. Um, I uh, focused more in the book on uh, legal hanky-panky that the U.S. was engaged in, certainly in the beginning, uh, in order to clear the way to set up a pandemic. Now, um, pursuant 
to my growing concern about this. I twice traveled to Geneva, Switzerland, and attended the Biological Weapons Convention at the United Nations there. And I learned some very interesting things. Uh, for one, uh, the Biological Weapons Convention is one, I believe, the only arms treaty that has no verification protocol and uh, no way to, uh, to enforce it. Now, how did that happen? Well, it happened because of the actions of John Bolton uh, serving as the ambassador to the UN from the United States in 2001, a mere six months before the attacks of September 11th and the subsequent uh, anthrax attacks. Uh, the, uh, the, the convention, the treaty, which had come into force in the 70s, actually was originally uh, written with no verification protocol. And an ad hoc committee had uh, worked uh, feverishly, really, to uh, hammer one out so that um, the treaty would have some teeth. Because without verification, uh, any sort of way to check, it's just a lot of words. So this, this protocol was presented in uh, May of 2001 to the convention at large and, and the U.S. delegation led by John Bolton got up and walked out. They boycotted it. Successfully, I might add. Uh, fast forward to uh, 2011, I am at the convention and we have now a surprise visit by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who apparently showed up in order to reaffirm how critical it was that this convention doesn't have any way to enforce itself. Her speech is also recorded in the book. So on both sides of the aisle, uh, the Republican and the Democrat, we have uh, obvious efforts to keep the Biological Weapons Convention uh, in the status of a whole lot of words on paper. Nothing more. Now, wow. why would that be? Yeah, right. And, and, and people, and people like John Bolton, I mean, the guys, you know, I think a true psychopath and certainly the, the queen of the deep state, Hillary Clinton, you have people like that involved. I mean, uh, they're up to no good, obviously. Well, um, you know, uh, some very interesting things transpired when I was at those conventions. Um, at, at one point, there was a presentation made by a couple of honchos from the CDC and the HHS, and uh, I had developed uh, uh, a, a sort of, um, well, I had some questions for them, right? So I raised my hand and I asked about these triage plans, which had been published in a noted uh, medical journal called Chest, uh, concerning who would be triaged out of the picture who would not get any medical services should a pandemic be declared. Because indeed, there was a, a big consortium of heavyweights, including the Department of Homeland Security, HHS, CDC, and the results were that 
uh, certain people weren't weren't going to get uh, ventilators and other sorts of medical care uh, in a pandemic emergency emergency crisis. Uh, notably, the elderly and those with cognitive problems. So they had basically already decided uh, um, to triage people uh, to death. So I had some questions about this. And up went my hand, I asked questions, and uh, I was I was completely stonewalled. I mean, these the two men, it was a Dr. Korch and another medical professional there, they, they, they simply denied what had been written, not only in the medical journal, but had been picked up by Associated Press. And uh, following my questions there, I was approached by a couple of State Department delegates who uh, told me they were concerned about the kinds of questions I was asking, and they wanted to talk to me a bit about them, which actually that conversation was not going to happen, and I just smiled and walked away. So, you know, it became more and more apparent to me that the U.S. was promoting uh, a false perception and they and and that this was the um, this was the program there for the State Department, for others from the U.S. Uh, there was another incident where a member from the Department of Homeland Security named Dr. Daniel Gerstein did another presentation. This was a side event during the lunch hour, and he put up on a screen the uh, the the biological weapons law uh, of the U.S. so he could show everybody what strong and uh, and vital legislation we had. Well, it was the old law, not the law amended by 817 in which the U.S. gives itself immunity from violating its own laws. It was uh, a, an attempt at deception. So um, for me, it was a fascinating experience. I went in 2011 and again in 2016 uh, to the Biological Weapons Convention. And I'll tell you, it was a real education for me. Well, did did you get did you get to talk to any really renowned people? I mean, I imagine you couldn't get close to Hillary or anybody like that. Did you get to, to talk to interview or talk to any of these really famous people? Well, there weren't really famous people there. I mean, there were State Department delegates, except for Hillary. Oh. Uh, no. You know, there, there weren't. There were delegates, and uh, and so forth. I did speak with the individuals uh, mentioned from you know the doctors from the CDC and also. Daniel Gerstein spoke with him, but there weren't famous people there. there so Anthony, Anthony Fauci wasn't there. Work of ease, really. Okay, so Fauci wasn't there. Oh no. Okay. Yeah. I see. No, absolutely not. So you saw. So when 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 uh, you heard we heard of this this outbreak in Wuhan, I guess you weren't really surprised, or were you? Oh, my first thought is, now it starts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah well, but, but, but but I mean, did you, because I, I remember when this ha first happened, I just kept saying, I, I'm trying to see the end game here. First, for, I, and I thought they had bitten off a lot more than they could chew when they canceled uh, 
uh, sports. They canceled all the major sporting events, March Madness, and you know baseball. I said, but this is the playoffs. And this, I said, this isn't. The people aren't going to stand for this. The normies aren't going to stand for this. They started closing all the the stores and everything. I said, this is you know movies. I said, this is they're butting up more. But I I'm shocked and I remain really disillusioned, Janet. That. Uh, uh, the way the majority of Americans and I, I guess the majority of people around the world have just rolled over and accepted all this because I, I, I'm shocked, you know, that that they you know accepted this incredible, uh, you know, uh, elimination of their civil liberties in many cases. And, and how were you as shocked as I was, especially about the, the the shutdowns when they shut down the businesses? How more you had so few people that said, "Wait a minute, how?" How are you targeting these small business owners? And in the same area, the big chains are selling the exact same products, and you don't have any restrictions on them. How? Why don't? How do people not question that? Um, you know, I, I started feeling uh, right away like I was living in a science fiction movie. Yeah. And and every day it was just it was just more um, of of this of the same bizarre sorts of. Uh, mandates without much resistance so um you know it's i think it's a matter of perspective um you know what what well what kind of world do you think we live in you know who runs the world um and and what's really happening to the world and i think it should be clear at this point in time that um What's happening is that we're losing our civil liberties and our rights. Many of us are losing our lives and very likely not with the pandemic, but very likely to other influences and delivery systems. So here we are. Absolutely. Well, there's the music again. I think, are we going to break? Yeah, we're inside that. So are we going to break? Okay, thank you. Okay, sorry about that. I wasn't sure. Oh, we'll be right back after these words with more Janet Phelan. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. It's Don Jeffries here, filling in for Richard Serrett, who will be returned on November 7th. We're talking with reporter, author, Janet Phelan, about her new book, At the Breaking Point of History, How Decades of U.S. Duplicity Enabled the Pandemic, which has just been published by Trine Day, which Trine Day published my book, Bullyocracy, so I'm familiar with them. Uh, so let's, uh, let's talk. So what do you see at this point what do you think the end game is here, Janet? I mean, that's what I've never been able to figure out. Uh, is, are we going to end up in FEMA camps if we don't get vaccinated? I mean, how? I, I don't think there's – they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised at anything they tried to do at this point. Yeah, I'm not a big uh, FEMA camp uh, uh, believer, actually. Um, uh, I'm, I think there are far uh, less obvious ways to – um, punish people and to deny them their lives and their liberties, um, much of which I go into in the book. 
Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm concerned that we seem to be, we seem to have gone headlong towards loss of rights and loss of life. And um, this is what concerns me the most. Um, and I don't see it particularly letting up at this point in time. Uh, I see where the um, the imposition of of these rather draconian measures, particularly the lockdowns, which can facilitate uh, another one of the delivery systems, which I spent a lot of time talking about in the book, um, delivery systems as a word for uh, delivery of of a chemical or biological agent. So um, I, I think I put the book together in the hopes that it would kind of rattle some cages, maybe shake some people up, get them to start thinking about what's really going on here. You know, recently in the news, it, it does appear that um, the U.S. has finally copped to the fact that they were doing funding gain-of-function research mm -hmm. in Wuhan. I think uh, that it's very likely that a couple of heads are going to roll, but is that going to fix the problem? I don't think so. Uh, so I, I'm in a part of the world where um, these restrictions and so forth aren't really being levied. Um, and I, I, I intend to stay here for the time being because it seems a lot safer here than uh, in a lot of these, uh, you know, situations where the police are becoming more and more aggressive against people. Well, I think that's the most amazing thing about this. Uh, and I call it the greatest psyop of all time, what we're experiencing, because it's a worldwide thing. Yeah, and I, I'm used to I'm used to analyzing you know American conspiracies and cover-ups and, and corruption. This is I mean, is there anywhere in the world? I mean, Brazil kind of balked at it a while. And there were a couple. Was it Nigeria? A couple African countries, and the presidents died. You know, after you know, again, you know, I, I'm a conspiratorial guy, so that that stands out to me. But there's so Belarus, I think, early on balked at it, and Sweden didn't. But basically, the entire world has bought this thing, and. Very few people, you know, big, strong Vladimir Putin, are questioning it. I mean, this is unprecedented in the history of the world where, as you point out, the number – this is not the black death of Europe. The numbers just don't warrant this. I mean, I don't understand why no one anywhere in the world is questioning this. Well, I think more and more people are questioning it, and I think that's where our strongest hope lies is that people will realize – that they've been sold a bill of goods, and that. Uh... Well, yeah, I agree with you. Mill millions of people in America alone are questioning, but uh, I, but I, I think what I'm saying is that nobody in a position of power is questioning. Even in America, you know, you have a handful of Republicans that kind of, but they don't, they don't really question. They're not pointing out. I mean, Rand Paul talks about gain of function research, which you mentioned, things like that, but nobody's really talking about uh, these numbers don't add up. You know, and they, they, they don't and, – and why the vaccines have already killed, according to the CDC, not conspiracy theorists, have already killed, you know, double, triple amount by their very conservative figures that all the other vaccines combined since 1901. 
Now, why aren't more leaders? That's say that, that you know people with a public because we have these I you know these platforms, but somebody with a giant platform, I, I don't see anybody really talking into the total truth about this this craziness. Well, um, you know you're right, and personally, I think people are frightened. I think we've got killers on the list, and I think that's what's happening. I think people are being killed. And uh, they're being killed by a, a either maybe a virus, maybe a vaccine, maybe one of the other delivery systems that I discuss in the book. People are being killed. And when killers are on the loose and when killers are in charge, I think people get a bit nervous about themselves, their families. This is what I imagine. Absolutely. Well, it's, and and uh, I, I think that... Uh, it didn't, aren't they admitting that the total deaths overall have gone up dramatically from all causes? I mean, that's frightening, isn't it? I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand. What well, I, I, we're, we have a commercial, and we'll catch it on the other side. We'll be right back okay. after these words. Okay. of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And welcome back. I'm Don Jeffries filling in for Richard Serrett again who will be returning triumphantly on Sunday, November 7th. We're talking with author Janet Phelan. Uh, I wanted to uh, mention right, right before the commercial I was thinking uh, I don't know if you've heard this or not but I it's actually frightening because I've been very dubious about these numbers, and I've, I've been thinking oh, for a long time that they were just attributing uh, things, uh, deaths from other uh, instances, other uh, causes to COVID, and you're throwing everything but the kitchen sink there so they get the numbers up. But now I, I'm hearing people being sick, and I, I don't know if it's the vaccine or whatever. And what really concerns me is the other day I heard that they're, they're now acknowledging generally across the board that deaths from all causes are dramatically up. Have you heard that? If so, that that's really frightening. Has that happened before? I don't know. Are you saying uh, that cancer deaths, heart attack deaths, that yeah. all? I was not aware of that. I had not heard that. I will certainly check yeah. that out. Yeah, the, the, basically the overall death rate. I mean, people, more people are dying. I mean, that's scary. And I, and I suspect personally. Because I think, you know, I, I side with things. I think these vaccines are dangerous or to, to a lot of people. And I think maybe it's a lot of people are dying from the effects. Maybe it's delayed to some degree. I don't know. But I'm mean, sure you know. And, and some people in the world think that millions of people are going to die on a delayed basis from these vaccines. I certainly hope that doesn't happen. But uh, there's a big belief out there. And I think that's why so many are just, you know, saying, no, I'm not going to get it. Because I, I know myself. I fear a possible side effect or something terrible from a vaccine way more than I fear COVID. I don't, I don't know about you. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about COVID. Um, 
uh, I'm, I know a lot about natural medicine and, you know, what to do for respiratory problems and so forth. I'm not particularly concerned about it. Um, what really concerns me is, is the hysteria surrounding the vaccines that we see our government leaders engaged in. And uh, this two-tier society that you'd mentioned before that seems to be uh, launching up, you know, you're vaccinated, you're cool, like go anywhere, do anything. You're not vaccinated, you know, back of the bus, right? Yeah. And, uh, but I think there is so much more going on here besides the vaccines. And um, I know that uh, some of my contentions in the book, uh, some people have found controversial. I don't think at this point in time, given the amount of of documentation that the book contains that my statements about water as a delivery system could be considered controversial. I think they're pretty well documented now. So imagine a world where uh, lockdowns happen and people who are in lockdown uh, get, you know, the, the weaponized water. Who would know? Who would be able to say what they died of? Who would be able to say? Nobody would know. So, you know, we have a situation that has, is moving more and more towards uh, lack of disclosure, towards uh, abuse, uh, towards uh, uh, mandates that make no sense. And I, I personally believe that the truth will set us free. And I think that the more that these sorts of conversations take place, the better for everyone. Well, I certainly agree with you there. I want to ask you before, because we're, we're winding down here, uh, I ask this to everyone. I know how my situation is. This is this has become such an emotional issue, this entire COVID narrative. And now the vaccine's kicking in a really big, you know, it's, it's on steroids now. How is your fit? Because I, I know, you know, I'm becoming a pariah, black sheep in my large extended family. And so many other people I know are that way where relationships are breaking down. Uh, how, how are you perceived in your family writing this book and speaking out on this the way you do? Um, my family is uh, no longer on the planet, which is actually sort of oh. the point of the book Exile. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of a lone sheep here. I have uh, I have friends who who greatly support what I'm doing, and uh, family is a matter of the past. And I'm, you know, I don't worry that much what people think about me. Um, I'm very very committed to what I'm doing, and um, even if I had family looking funny at me, I don't think it would uh, do do much to uh, dissuade me. You know. Yeah, well, I mean, well, well, you know, well, maybe, maybe you're in, in a way you're lucky. I know a few people like that. They tell me you say so you don't get, you don't get to experience the heartbreak of uh, being canceled as I have. You know, I, I've been canceled by one of my nieces, and uh, you know, I've already not gotten go to go to a family wedding uh, because of it. And uh, you know, this, you're getting leaned on. Okay, I see yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I know that's happening everywhere. I mean, I, I, I talk to other people that are doing it. So I guess you're fortunate in a way because it's 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 tragic when you see that kind of stuff happening and uh, people, especially when you know that it's, you know, it's like you're, you're just, I mean, I, I mean, I know how the, the people I'm talking about 
I know when it's going to get worse because if they start talking about a new variant or new all these, these new things and suddenly the things are going to be more serious. Well, I don't know. You better not come around. That kind of stuff. Uh, it's and it's it's just so sad to see. You know, you're just you're just listening to talking heads. This is this is so foolish. I mean, let's in the time we have. What I don't understand is how you know what happened. What whatever this virus is, how can it be do? How can it possibly have not burned out? in the heat like every other virus in the history of the world i think has and what happened to covid 20 and i guess we should be covid 21 i mean that's supposed to be a coronavirus variant it was named 19 for 2019 what happened to those uh particular strains i mean no one talks about that how is covid 19 still here two years after you know it hit the scene because it's very useful and because people (laughs) really don't you know don't have the level of science education anymore, where they're able to, uh, to to make these determinations for themselves and ask these questions. People rely on authorities. And who do we have for authorities? We have Anthony Fauci, we have Bill Gates, and God help us all. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be confident in those authorities. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what you think as well. But uh, I want to give you, uh, we want to have a couple of minutes. I want to make sure we get that in there uh, to promote what you want to promote. Talk about the book again, where people can find it. Uh, if you have a website or anything else, how people can get in touch with you or follow your work. Sure. Thank you. Uh, well, I mostly write for activist post these days. Um, so you can, you know, see what I'm doing there. And um, I have the book, which I really, really hope people will read and digest because it is heavily footnoted and documented. You're not going to be able to squirm out of this one and say, but this is a conspiracy theory. No, not with this level of documentation. So uh, the book is At the Breaking Point of History, How Decades of U.S. Duplicity Enabled the Pandemic. You can find it on Amazon uh, or on trinday.com, who's the publisher, and probably not in bookstores. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much how people can follow my work. Well, certainly you could be commended. It, it's it's a remarkable work. Uh, it goes over a lot more than this pandemic, but I think people want to read the last part of it just for that, because it's uh, these are uh, unprecedented times we're living in, and uh, we need to rely on people like you, because there's no mainstream journalists that are, if you were still in the mainstream, I'm sure you realize you, you, you probably wouldn't be doing this kind of work or you wouldn't be uh, getting paid to write any articles on it. That's for certainly from this perspective. Anyhow, if you were questioning it, because I, I don't see anyone in the mainstream, maybe Tucker Carlson to some, to some degree that is uh, questioning this at all. Well, like I said earlier, there are killers on the loose. And, uh, you know, God bless our press. I wish they'd grow some huevos. (laughs) We call them here, huevos, yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, you, you and I both. I certainly hope that I, I certainly would want them to do that as well. Right, we're going to break here. For, we're going to go for to hour two coming up. And Janet Phelan, thank you so much for being with us. The hour two, we're going to talk to former employee blackjack dealer Gino Monari. He's going to take us back to the heyday of Las Vegas and the storied history of the legendary Dunes Hotel and Casino. So stay with us. We'll be right back. 
From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Seard. I'm Don Jeffries. I am filling in for Richard. And uh, next Sunday, I'm sorry, let me get this in front of me. Next Sunday, uh, we will have another guest host, Allie Siadian, who will be filling in next Sunday. We're going to be talking to Jonathan Kahn, a New York Times bestselling author, discuss his book, Harbinger 2, The Return. Uh, and uh, I'm again. I'm Don Jeffries, and you can find me. Uh, I'm, I'm the author of many, many uh, best-selling books: Hidden History, Survival of the Richest, Crimes and Cover-ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. Uh, you can find me at donaldjeffries.news, donaldjeffries.media, and uh, I've uh, been on Richard's show many times, and he's been on my show. Great friend, uh, admire his work very much. Very honored to be on the show. Our guest. Our second guest tonight is Gino Minari, who is, uh, it looks like he's, you know, one of the, almost the founder of Las Vegas. I guess he moved there in 1964. His resume is incredibly impressive. He's uh, started Houdini Publishing in 1992, still currently doing it. He's a publisher and writer of literally hundreds of publications uh, covering varied subjects. We're going to talk about his book on uh, Las, uh, Las Vegas today. He uh, collaborated on many scripts for some many well-known movies like The Rain Man, Indecent Proposal, uh, just incredible. Just looking at uh, his history is just fascinating. And he's a, a friend of one of my great friends, John Barber. Uh, he was involved as a co-writer in the John's uh, fantastic uh, documentary. And I think it's what, maybe the best documentary ever on the JFK assassination, the second assassin, the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So, Gina Minari, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Don, and thanks for asking me to come on. It's a pleasure indeed. Oh, well, it's, it's just fascinating. I mean, you know, this this world is, uh, you know, <laughs> its world is amazing to me. I mean, geez, you, you've, you've led such an exciting life. I mean, when you if you go past the casinos now, are you, are you like somebody that, that, you know, works in a restaurant, they never eat there? I mean, do you do you just ignore everything there? You know, most people go there and they see the, the, the bright lights and the extra oxygen pumped in and they get all excited. Uh, do you just kind of ignore that because it's, it's, it's old hat to you? Well, you know, that's always the old story. You know, people think that if you live here, you live in one of the hotels. You know, actually, I think I haven't been in some of the new ones. I don't even know what the new wind looks like on the inside. I should go over there. But, uh, you know, uh, when I moved here, uh, just right out of high school, the same week I graduated, uh, you know, I was, I went to the dunes and different hotels and watched the poker rooms. My eyes opened up and I couldn't believe what I saw. So, um, I went to UNLV and I got a job in the nighttime working as a busboy at the Sahara Hotel. And I worked with all the dealers there that told me stories. Every 20 minutes, the dealers would change and come in and have coffee. They worked 40 minutes on, 20 minutes off. And I got to know all these guys and heard all these stories, and I was I just was fascinated. I just couldn't stop. I wanted more and more, and so uh, that's uh, that's part of how this all started. And uh, well, so yeah, I, I guess. You... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, and so you know, I was working as a busboy. I'm making a little money, and I get off at seven o'clock in the morning, and I go out to the uh, you know go have a little breakfast, and I I took flying lessons. So uh, uh, the little place where I took flying lessons, that's where I met one of the owners of the Dunes Hotel, 
who uh, eventually gave me a job when I was when I was 21 years old, uh, 22 years old rather. And uh, so that's how it started. I went to work at the Dunes Hotel, like in 1968, and I just couldn't wait to get to work. It was the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I went to work an hour early just to be there, uh, you know. And uh, so all, all these things, uh, I decided to, you know, I, the place was such a great place. The owners were great guys. You know, there was eight management teams, you know, when the Dunes started in 1955 and, of course, closed in 1993. But I was there in the, in the middle of it with the, the most successful management team, which was Sid Wyman, George Duckworth, Charlie Rich, Howie Engel, Butch Goldstein, and a couple of other guys. It was just absolutely wonderful. These guys, you know, they didn't have smartphones. You know, they did things just out of their, out of their brain, out of their pocket. You know, and they made the place successful. The best of everything, the best gambling, most exciting thing in the world, and what turned the dunes around, being that it was a little bit outside of town in those days, you got to remember the dunes now is where the Bellagio sits. So if all you people are been to Las Vegas, you know where the Bellagio is. That's the famous Dunes Hotel. and That was where the dunes was. And it started off with 200 rooms, then it grew to, you know, like the 1,200 rooms. And um, The key thing that made that place successful was bringing and buying business, plus filling their rooms up. So the more business that they had, the more business that they had, uh, you know, the more the more gambling they had. And these junkets would come in from uh, New York, it started with, and they'd come in on a Thursday, leave on a Sunday, and every other week New York would show up. And then in between that one, be, you'd have Detroit, and Chicago, and so forth, and so on. And also, you know, the Dunes had an 18-hole championship golf course. That was another thing. And so it was a great, great place to work. I couldn't wait to get to work. I started there as a blackjack dealer. I heard you say that when the show started. But I wound up uh, as a Baccarat uh, executive uh, when I last left the Dunes. And, and that was, at that time, one of the most prestigious jobs to even get in the casino. And, um, and uh, you know, I, 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 was, I was working downtown, breaking in, to learn the games. And you have to do that in order to... Uh, to basically be able to work in a first-class place. So I spent about a year downtown, a year and a half, you know, dealing blackjack, roulette, and a little bit of craps. And uh, I went out to the Flamingo and tried to get an audition, they call it, like a tryout. And the guy, I, I could deal fairly well. He said, you're not ready. And I thought I was, but I, I think he just didn't want to hire me. I was had too many people wanted jobs. I walked outside. I saw the Dunes Hotel, and I, a light went on in my head. I said, you know, George Duckworth, I met him at the airport when I was learning to fly. I'm going to go over there and see if I can get a job. I get an audition. I walked across the street. I got on the table. He was there. He said, get on the table and deal. I dealt, and he hired me on the spot. And uh, that was the start of it, 1968. And then at home, I wanted to learn Baccarat. So I bu- we built a table, me and a friend of mine, Ray Madrano, uh, who wound up to be a successful employee at Caesars Palace, the Baccarat department. Uh, we learned Baccarat, and we learned it, you know, just a little bit at home. So, uh, you know, about six months of dealing blackjack in the dunes, I got the nerve to walk up to Mr. Duckworth. You know, you never bothered these guys when they had, were in a bad mood. You could tell they were in a good mood or in a bad mood. And you knew, you know, when to t- talk to them. Uh, it was not like, uh, you know, you get an appointment. You just took your shot. I walked up to him, and I said, Mr. Duckworth, I said, um, you know, I'm, I'm practicing Baccarat at home. 
but I would like to go over on the table and work for free if I could, just to try to learn the game. He says, buy yourself two tuxedos, you're starting tomorrow night. And he left me hanging there, and he walked away. And I tried to tell him, oh, wait a minute, I don't know the game. He didn't make a difference. They stuck me right on the game, and that was the start of the whole thing. So. Baptism by fire, boy. Well, I, I, and I just want to make sure because I, I, I neglected to, to give out the title of your book because all your your entire fascinating career can be found in a very large book you wrote called Las Vegas, Las Vegas's Dunes Hotel, Casino, and Country Club: The Mob, The Connections, and the Stories by Correct. Gino Monari. So, and it's uh, you know you're, you're it's just a fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you, you've you've led a really, really interesting life. I, I imagine you know that. I mean, mo- most people do not have this uh, <laughs> this kind of background. But you sound like you're really appreciative, and you you started out at the very bottom. I guess you know, in 1964 or whatever, it was still possible in America. I don't think it is possible to do that now to start, you know, a mailroom level and rise up to being some kind of an executive or whatever you wound up at. But uh, just kind of an American success story. Well, you know, I, I really, you know. I always felt myself I had to do better and, 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 and do a little do a little more than just the average guy to be successful. I just I wanted to be the best at what I did. And, uh, you know, I thought I was going to go into aviation, actually, but uh, my eyes weren't good enough. And so I couldn't get a job with the airlines. And so uh, there I there there I am in the Baccarat pit. And, uh, and and how this whole thing, you know, I don't think I was even aware at the time of the strength of the so-called mob, the outfit, the syndicate, you know, that wasn't what the dunes was to me. It was like, hey, I'm just going to go to work and make some money and have a good time. And I couldn't wait to get there. So one day, the guy, one of the floor men at the dunes in the day shift was a guy from New York. His name was Taglia Lalatella. And he was a guy with uh, them to these kind of an accent. And he was what he was. And I didn't know much about him at the time other than, he, he was a decent guy, and he had a lot of experience. And uh, uh, was in Baccarat in the in the old days, and at the Sands. And he also, you know, dealt paper craps. That means dealing with paper means with cash, not with chips. And so, one day when they, they stuck me over in the pit on the day shift, he was the boss. And uh, as I got off, you know, he got to know me a little bit. In a couple of months, I'm getting off the table after I was calling the hand in Baccarat, like, like the stick man, you sort of call it, where you, you know, call the cards. And uh, as I walked around to get on the other side of the table to work another 20 minutes, he says, come here a second. W- would you please read this memo to me? My, my eyes are bothering me. And um, uh, so, you know, I looked at it, and uh, I kind of explained it to him. And um, he said, thank you. And ever since that day, you know, I didn't embarrass him. I, I felt that maybe... He wasn't the best um, learned reader in the world, you know. And there's a couple of words that he didn't maybe know, but I didn't embarrass him, and I, I helped him. And from that day forward, he took me under his wing and showed me, uh, you know, about this game and how to deal it and what to do and, you know, and so forth and so on. And, uh, and then one day he said something to me. He's, you know, he was very, very friendly with me and uh, invited me to his house. His, his wife used to cook Italian food. we go out to eat. You know, one day he said to me, and he points to himself, and he says, you know, Gino, he says, I can never be fired from this hotel. And I looked at him like, what do you mean? You know, I didn't get it. He said, if my man could walk through here, he'd pay $50,000. And all of a sudden, a a, a light went on in my head, and uh, I figured it out that he 
was pretty connected to somebody. And uh, so that's what I started looking at. Every day I saw something new and another light went on. I saw another uh, situation where, what are those guys doing? What are they doing? And what about that guy? And so forth. And then you'd, you'd have unusual customers that bet enormous amounts of money. You say, where did they get this money? And uh, anyway, it was, it was like, a, like a story, like watching a movie every single day. Well, I guess so. And you're you're young when you start, obviously. And you, this is obviously an exciting world to you. You're giddy, I guess. I mean, did you? And how many did, did you see? Uh, so you you talk in the book about Wally Cox. So I loved Wally Cox. You know, and his, his his kind of you know odd or you know odd couple friendship with Marlon Brando. But and I guess he had a a, a, a very short tenure there. In the dunes, what 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 were some of the big celebrities that came to the dunes and and, and performed there? And then did you get to meet any of them? Well, Wally Cox landed four, uh, lasted four days, by the way. Right. So you know, yeah, right. And, and Marlon Brando was in the audience screaming. Now, and I wasn't yeah. there then. This was back when they first opened. Uh, but okay. the dunes then the dunes uh, was basically taken over after Peepers by the Sands Hotel, and Sinatra worked there, and. Uh, right. And then they, they didn't last too long. And then finally, um, uh, it was put together by a couple of, there was landlords and there was operators. And Riddle and a couple of other guys, Major Riddle, uh, that was his name, Major Riddle, not, a, not an officer, but that was his name, um, who was a very close friend of Hoffa and, you know, and had a trucking business, uh, took it over. And then they, they started these uh, the Minsky Follies. They brought Minsky in and they had Abbott and Costello and all kinds of guest stars. But through the course of the Dunes, the years of the Dunes, they had a gigantic floor show. And then they had a small lounge show called Viva La Girls. It was a French-style review. And in the main showroom, Casino de Paris, a cast of 100. So it was not... Occasionally, they'd have a guest star that would sing in the show, like Lynn Renan and Rovan and, you know, and other people. But it wasn't like, uh, like the Sands Hotel where they had one headliner... You know, like right. Frank Sinatra. It was just a different operation. Uh, so so it, it worked, though. It worked for the Dunes. It, it brought people. They could price it right. They had it worked out. They had the best food. They had the Sultan's Table restaurant, the most beautiful place you ever saw in your life. One, one night we were on the, in the Baccarat pit, and John Wayne was walking through the casino. And one of the other floor men was kind of gutsy. I'll never forget him, Attilio Panaccio. And that night, Lenny Stelly was with me, and Dick Brewer, and 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 I, I think uh, Tilio Panacci, Tut, we called him. He said, "Hey, hey, Duke, say hello to the boys." And and, and just in the style of John Wayne, he kind of walks, kind of like he does in the movies, and he goes, "Hiya, fellas!" Everybody gave him a round of applause. It was like wonderful. And of course, and of course, one of the most interesting things, one of the owners of the Dunes Hotel, uh, Sid. Uh, Sid Wyman and Cupy Rich. Cupy Rich was his partner. His real name was Charles Rich. I don't mean to use that in an inappropriate manner, but that was his nickname as a kid. But no one ever called him Cupy. Cupy had a little boxing gym in, in, in St. Louis, and where Sid Wyman and him had an absolutely fantastic bookmaking operation. Now, this is leading somewhere, so I want to just give you this. And so they actually used the, the Western Union agents to accept bets for them all over the country and send them to them in St. Louis. And they paid the agents a commission for getting the business. They, were, they did some big business. Like, 
you know, they'd gross seven, eight million dollars a year in, in 1949 and 50. That's like incredible. And uh, so in St. Louis, Charles Rich met Terry Grant, met him at a, at, a, at a sports function or something, and they became the best of friends. They had two opposites, a little guy about five foot two and Terry Grant about, you know, dashing movie star. He used to come to the dunes all the time and uh, was, was a fabulous guy. Uh, a fabulous guy. Uh, people would recognize him completely, you know, you know, like go crazy. They'd scream. You know, one time at the cage, a lady was in front of him, and he was right behind her, and he had his glasses on, and he wanted to be not noticed. And she got done with her business. She turned around real fast, and she dropped her purse, and he bent down to pick up the contents. And the lady looked up to see who it was, and she almost fainted. She screamed, Gary Grant! Oh, my God. But he was a nice guy. He was a fabulous guy. Fabulous guy. Incredible actor, incredible personality. So, so you, this was so you got to, you got to at least see these people. Did you ever get to interact with any of these uh, celebrities that, that were walking through the casino or performing there? Well, you know, you knew your, you kept your spot. You know, you didn't uh, go over your. Yeah, spot, you didn't over. You know what I mean, but, right. The bosses were the bosses. That was their business. You know, uh, but uh, one of the bosses that hired me, Mister Duckworth, uh, he had an English wife. Kim Darvis, that was her name. Uh, and she was a beautiful lady. She's passed away. I'm so sorry to hear about that. But, you know, one day, uh, they, Cary Grant, George Duckworth, the casino director, and his wife were just leaving the Sultan's table. And he said that Cary Grant leaned over to George's ear and he says, does your wife have a sister? And, you know, basically, mm-hmm. you know, he thought she was just absolutely fabulous. You know, as mm-hmm. far as interacting with him, I would say no. We, we we kept our our business. We minded our business. We know we, we were. In other words, when we were asked to talk, we talked. We just didn't take over. Like I would have to say, it's a little different today. Today, the people would act like they're their best friends, and that's not the way it really is. You know, you, you respected their privacy, and uh, you left them alone. You know. Except, well, do you, know, do like, you still? Do, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I said, do you no. still live in Las Vegas? Do you do you go to do I you do. go to any of the casinos now? I do occasionally. You know, once in a while I like to play poker. Uh, or some friends in town, we go out to eat. I might, well, since the COVID thing, of course, not recently. But we go out and we, maybe we'd play blackjack a little bit or just have some fun. But, uh, you know, it, it's always fun to see the gambling, see how the new games are running and, and see how they run things. And, of course, you know, the way I look at things and the way things are run today, it's two different points of view. Two different points of view. You know, the, the bosses at the Dunes Hotel, they were the contact of the players. They were the handshakers. They were the guys that came up to you and basically, you know, touched your belly, basically, you know. And they were the ones that took care of you. And they had a following. And they were loyal. Those customers were loyal to them. Today, you know, I don't think, uh, and I'm not trying to belittle anybody, but I don't think the executives of the hotels even want to even meet a customer unless he's the best customer in the house, you know. It's just a different business, too. It's a different business. Yeah, well, obviously, things. I mean, how? I mean, I know in, in, in our, I mean, I live on the East Coast, and we used to go to Atlantic City quite a bit. And uh, Atlantic City, boy, I mean, it's, they were devastated several years ago when they legalized. Uh, they started put well, they put some casinos around here, very uh, close to us in Maryland and uh, parts of Virginia, and uh, you in Philadelphia, Foxwoods. Pardon me. Yeah, Foxwoods. yeah. So, so. 
So, I mean, how has, has uh, I mean, I guess Las Vegas doesn't have the same concerns, but Atlanta City is really uh, doing poorly now compared to what they were because of the competition, aren't they? It's, there's changed, things have changed there. Well, you know, uh, it, it, there's a lot of competition. And, um, you know, but Las Vegas is Las Vegas. People yeah. love Las Vegas. I don't know what it is. They love the idea of the mob used to run it. They love <laughs> the fabulous hotels. But, you know, if you go to an and I hate to say this, but you go to another location that has game, gambling. Uh, you know, I mean, Reno's kind of nice, but you go to other places in California or, or wherever, it's just not the same. It, it just doesn't have the excitement. You know, once you leave the casino, where are you going to go? To, a, like, the Denny's restaurant? There's nothing else going on, you know? So uh, I just think there's no replacement of Las Vegas. It's the excitement. It's the entertainment capital of the world. And, and I think that that's... That's the key to it: entertainment, reasonable food, and and and, and inexpensive rooms. You know, um, I didn't only work at the, the Dunes; I worked at other places. And we were—I worked at a place called the Imperial Palace, which is now the Link, which is across the street from Caesars. Uh, can, can you hold that? Hold that? Hold that thought, Gino. I Conspiracy will. show with Richard Seward. I'm Don Jeffries. We'll continue after these words. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Sometimes corporations got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416 360 0740 or toll free at 1 866 740 4740. Welcome back to the Conspiracy Show. I'm Don Jeffries again, filling in for the incomparable Richard Serrett, who is in Greece and will return Sunday, November 7th. Uh, you were until you were so rudely interrupted by the commercial, Gino. You were you were talking about something. Please uh, take up where you left off. Well, I was going to say, you know, with Las Vegas, the, when someone enters the city in the airplane by airplane or even by car, you come up down the pass from Los Angeles or from Reno, or in the airplane, you see all these lights. You see you see fifty square miles of lights basically, and in, in the in those lights are all these casinos. You know, you have so many options. You have every kind of casino you want, every kind of a gambling operation you want. You have themed ones, you have non-themed ones, you have, you know, spa-type places to, like, uh, waterwork-type places. So it's, it's really a lot of uh, choices you can make as a t- tourist. But what I was going to say is, you know, the theory that, I, that we had at the Imperial Palace was, you know, fill the rooms and get bodies. And, you know, today, some of the hotels are getting a little carried away with their prices. You know, uh, so say you have to pay 250 for a room, and you've got a $1,000 budget. I'm just going to give you an example. So if you're here for two days, 
that's five hundred dollars went to the room, and you had a couple hundred dollars to eat. So that's seven hundred dollars. You only got three hundred left to gamble for for two days and say play blackjack. You know, uh, wouldn't it be better if you charge less for the rooms, a little bit less right. for the food? They'd have more money to play, and if you could keep them in your place, they'd lose all the money right. back there anyway, and they'd have fun doing it. And that's, I think, a, a situation that that has to be looked at. If I had a place, uh, I would certainly run it like we did in the old days. Good entertainment, clean rooms, uh, and, and not cheap food, but good, inexpensive, subsidized food. Give them a bargain. Give people a bargain. They love that. Absolutely. You want them spending money. I know. I, I, I think Las Vegas used to run the same way as Atlantic City. You know, we, we. I don't think I ever paid for a room in Atlantic City. We always got free rooms, and uh, they used to have. Uh, I, and I think a lot wasn't Las Vegas famous for their free buffets at one time, or you you could get coupons out of a magazine or something, or you you know get credits from the casino because they, they want you spending your money. They want you putting the the money in the you know on gambling. So they'll, they'll, you know, give you a free meal and a free room, won't they? Exactly. They have a, a, a rating system, basically. You know, there's so many hands dealt an hour. And uh, it, they can calculate how much the theoretical, theoretical win should be for the casino by how much you're betting. You know, $25 right. a hand, you know, in Baccarat, there's, say, 80 hands times the casino percentage. They know they're going to make X dollars from you. So, yeah, they can then, if you are a real player, you deserve complimentaries. If you're not a player, you shouldn't get complimentaries, uh, other than free drinks maybe occasionally. And they have ways, they have tracking systems that are pretty uh, fluent, basically. I mean, pretty pretty exotic, actually. And they can tell you exactly what, what you did, almost. And that's what they use. They use those things to give you credits. They give you gifts and cash. Well, I designed a, a casino club for the San Remo Hotel, which is now Hooters, and uh, I called it the Money Club. Instead of giving jackets, you know, hats and cups away, I gave them points, which were cash, converted to cash. You could buy uh, jackets and caps with that money, but I, I figured that if you give them back to the cash, they're going to come back to you and gamble with it. And that was some of the right. ideas. So, you know, some of the best marketing tools, you know, from the old days could be turned around a little bit and reused, and people would love them. Sure. I mean, so now let's let's talk a little bit about the the mob and uh, what you saw there. And I, 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 I'm sure you know maybe as you talked about the one guy, you pretty much knew what he was. But I mean, how how overt was the influence in Las Vegas of the mob, or, or was it kind of in the background? And you just assumed something was there, but you didn't really see, you know, blatant indications of it. Well, yeah, you, you, you know, you knew about it, but you didn't really inquire too much because it was none of your business. But there was instances when I was working at the dunes where it couldn't be avoided, where certain people would come in who weren't supposed to be there, and uh, the dunes got in trouble. For one was Nick Savella, who was from Kansas City. Uh, he was a notorious mobster, and uh, the dunes got fined for him. And he got also was put on the, uh, the Nevada blacklist where he couldn't come in any Nevada gaming property. Uh, and then a couple of other guys uh, were friends of, for instance, uh, in where I worked, were friends with some of the top guys from St. Louis. And, uh, you know, we couldn't have avoid not seeing them and talking to them and dealing with them 
at the Baccarat table. Uh, nice to us, treated us like gentlemen. Uh, but uh, the Dunes basically was the, I, I would say, let's put it to you this way Hoffa was one of the first uh, funders to the Dunes Hotel through Jake Gottlieb. And Hoffa, in his union, you know, basically, you know, had all kinds of uh, union representatives in various cities, and they had, they made loans to various casinos, and of course, there was undoubtedly kickbacks in some of the situations. And some of those situations, you know, um, those kickbacks were in, were involved with, with mobsters. Uh, for instance, uh, Mo Dalitz of the Desert Inn, uh, who was a friend of Hoffa, and uh, he, Mo Dalitz is one of the most respected guys in Las Vegas, but a big operator, ran the Desert Inn Hotel and the Stardust Hotel. He and, had some uh, influence at in Hollywood. Did, didn't Mo Dalitz go back to Hollywood, too? Uh, no, not not so much him no. Uh, okay, he was from Detroit. He was from Detroit, uh, okay. and uh, in, in any event, uh, he built a place called La Costa. La Costa was down there by San Diego, and it was funded by the Teamsters. And it was basically a hangout for uh, for the public as well as all the mobsters. And uh, you know, uh, so Alan Dorfman, who was Hoffa's handpicked handpicked executor of the of the fund uh was who did time for kickback you know was a regular customer at the dunes in, in some ways uh his girlfriend was a cocktail waitress there and i'll never forget one night you know we were making plenty of money off of a customer uh, tips wise and the, the cocktail waitress was making nothing because he wasn't drinking so you know we made maybe three four thousand off of the guy and you know so i said let's give the cocktail waitress the next bet for the dealers. And so we put her up for, well, he put her up for $100. She won the bet, and I gave it to her, and she was so excited. You know, she gave me a kiss on the cheek. And uh, later, one of the other bosses says, you know who that is, don't you? That's Alan Dorfman's girlfriend. And I went, oh. <laughs> so, you know, he was, a guy, he was a guy that was assassinated in Chicago. I don't know if you know that. And, uh, 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 yeah, boy. So, you know, we, we had a lot of interesting things. And we had guys, uh, you know, that were, we, 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 had a, we had a host at the Dunes. His name was uh, High Goldbaum. And High Goldbaum was a diminutive fella dressed to the hilt. And he used to wear a cologne called White Shoulders. Now, White Shoulders is a woman's perfume. But in the 30s, men used to wear it. And so, you know, you, you, well, you know when you sat with, I used to sit with him at dinner every night, and he'd you know, tell me stories. And he, and he told me a story where he was out here, he came with Bugsy Siegel to work the Flamingo, and he ran the, the commission uh, sports book inside the place where they took bets from all over the country, all over the country. And if you had a bet you wanted to lay off, you know, you paid a, a commission fee besides the bet. And uh, if, if you won the bet, you got paid. If you lost the bet, you lost the, the bet and the commission. And he told me, you know, that uh, his phone bill, was about twelve to fifteen thousand dollars a month because they had phones that went everywhere all over the country, and the guy from the phone company it was called Central Telephone would come out and you know and collect the money in person. He'd bring the bill out to High and, and say, "Hi, here's the bill," and High would pay him. And so one day, this this telephone guy says to High Goldbaum, "He says, Hi, um, uh, you know you can buy the company for maybe fifty thousand dollars. It's rumored for sale." He says, "I don't want any of that." 
and that was the end of that. He turned down buying the phone company, you know, for like fifty thousand, but his phone bill was fifteen to twenty thousand a month. And he was he was quite a bookmaker. He was Bugsy Siegel's personal friend, and he was brought to the Flamingo, and then he came to work at the Dunes uh, years later. Um, and, uh, and then you know there was uh, uh, a lot of strange things and conspiracy things even came up for a bit. Uh, but I had a couple bosses I worked for uh, in, the, in the Baccarat pit who got in trouble for bookmaking. They had an illegal bookmaking operation in the Dunes Hotel and in one of the apartments. And, uh, and uh, you know, they were, they were being watched, and somebody informed on them, and they got arrested. And uh, a group of five, six guys were in, indicted for a bookmaking operation, and they confiscated a, a, a locked cash box in the casino cage from Sidney Wyman, and they got $800,000 out of that box. Uh, the FBI, you know, confiscated. And uh, so two of the guys, you know, uh, went to jail. They went to the county farm temporarily because they were in contempt of court for not talking. They wouldn't, they wouldn't testify. Believe, you know, we, we had a policy in the dunes at the time where the bosses were in with a tip, and if you got fired, you were in for a year until you, you got a job. So it was my job to take the tips to the jail. <laughs> That sounds crazy, but I actually took the tips. We called them tokes to the jail, and uh, I gave them their tips in jail. And uh, you know, I, the, this was like a kind of like an honor farm out in the uh, east side of Las Vegas, and the conditions were pretty bad. I mean, the furniture was terrible, and so Mr. Mr. Wyman, Sidney Wyman at the Dunes Hotel, bought the entire jail furniture so those guys could be comfortable for a while. And uh, I did that for until they got out of jail. That was that was quite a quite a trip. Every day, you know, every once a week, I'd go out there and visit them. Uh, so not the normal thing as prison supposed to do, but that's what I did. Absolutely. Well, there's some music again. We'll be right back after these words. Joe's conspiracy show with Richard Sear. From somewhere deep inside the Great White North. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. I am not Richard Serrett. I am Don Jeffries filling in for Richard. Tonight he will return on uh, Sunday, November 7th. We're talking to Gina Minari. And uh, Gina, I have to uh, ask you about, you know, my, uh, my, 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 I'm the conspiracy world. That's my favorite uh, part of the world. It's what I wrote about more than anything else. And the JFK assassination is my wheelhouse issue. I go way back to the mid-70s when I was a teenage volunteer working with Mark Lane's group, Citizens Committee of Inquiry. Uh, so oh, wow. this has been a part, yeah, this has been a part a of my of, life forever. A lot of respect for yeah. Mark Lane. Oh, he was my hero, my men- mentor, my hero. But, uh, you know, I became a civil libertarian because of him. There aren't too many of us left these days. But uh, So how, how did you get involved? Tell us about working with my good friend, John Barber. This gratifying friendship I've had. I like just a wonderful guy. Still admire him. So 88 years old and has the energy of a teenager. Uh, these, this fantastic documentary, The Second Assassination of President, uh, The American Meeting, The Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. How'd you come to be involved with that? Talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, I met John and uh, uh, he wanted to do this project. And basically, I, 
I helped him do the project, and uh, we did a lot of the editing, and we did a lot of the writing, and we put it together. And at the time, my theory was, like everyone else's, you know, the CIA did it, and, and uh, Garrison, you know, Garrison was, was partially right. But, you know, over the years, I've changed my, my thinking entirely, completely, and I've gone the other way. Uh, my theory was from the information that I came across, and I, and I don't have all the answers here, but my theory is that uh, I think it was, uh, that was the mob with some other people, and they had some help. And the reason I tell you that is because I didn't want to write this last chapter in one of the chapters of my book, and I don't know if you read this yet, but um, there, there were guys in the Baccarat pit that actually knew uh, Jack Ruby. They didn't like him. I mean, they didn't take nothing of him. Um, uh, I worked with a guy by the name of Joe Slayton, Erwin Gordon, Dave Goldberg. They knew Jack Ruby, and John Stone, who was one of the biggest bookmakers a friend of mine since I was a young teenager. Uh, his daughter wound up becoming the sports book manager of the Stardust Hotel for Lefty Rosenthal. And she lived in the same building as Jack Ruby did in Dallas at one time. And uh, there was a guy that came into the dunes quite often. His name was R.D. Matthews. He was frightening. He had one a patch over one of his eyes and he used to pick up the diminutive high goal bomb and they'd joke and, you know, High would act like he's choking his neck. He'd pick him up like a little doll and lift him off the ground about two feet. And uh, here was a guy you didn't fool with. And he worked for Benny Binion at the time at the Horseshoe Club, uh, legendary Benny Binion. But, but the funny part is when Ruby was arrested, uh, they found R.D. Matthews' card in his wallet. And I believe the night before the uh, – I'd have to look at my notes here. This, I got so much stuff in this book. And I'm missing, missing so many things. But there was a phone call uh, revealed, a 13-minute phone call from Ruby's Care Cell Club in Dallas to Matthew's ex-wife in Shreveport, Louisiana. That was October 3rd, 1963. And it was uh, you know, it's one of those things. But all of a sudden, these kind of these, these little clues came up. And, uh, and I started realizing there was uh, Walt Brown, a former FBI agent, uh, who was a lead investigator at one time. Uh, he visited uh, the weapons dealer in Oklahoma where R.D. Matthews had the tools of his trade specially made. And uh, it was kind of a, I mean, R.D. Matthews is a guy that was, uh, was, was, was something else. You'd have to read the book to realize there's so, so much more about him. But he was actually questioned before the committee, uh, one of the committees, and he took the ex federal judge who was uh, impeached, Harry Claiborne, as his, as his lawyer. And uh, so, so anyway, I always had this idea, you know, uh, about, about things and, and I, things I read and so forth and so on. And, and then one day, and of course, you know, uh, there was a lot of sources asserted that Hoppe had something to do with the assassination of JFK. Uh, Frank Regano reported that. Uh, uh, and uh, that was one thing. And then uh, there was also uh, Edward Parton, who was an uh, associate of Hoffa. Uh, he was approached by Hoffa to kill RFK. And uh, the talented researcher and writer Dan Moldea published The Hoffa Wars. Uh, the first book to theorize that Hoffa recruited, recruited mobsters 
Marcello and Trepicante to arrange President Kennedy's assassination. Dan Moldeo, Dan Moldea doesn't miss dotting his I's or crossing his T's. He's thorough. And then one day, this is really crazy, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on a patio after, afternoon in a little restaurant, and I'm writing stuff. And this guy I've known for a good 25 years just happened to be leaving, and he, he stopped to say hello to me. He said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just writing this book. He said, what are you writing the book about? And I said, oh, I'm writing this chapter about Ruby and Kennedy and stuff like that. He said, we got to get together. i got to talk to you sometime. So I said, well, how about now? And he sat down and started telling me how he was a, he was a Marine, ex-Marine, of course. And now let me explain to you what he did. He spent his last uh, 35 years, I think, working at the Desert Inn Hotel, you know, just a little bit after they opened until they closed. And that was owned by Dalitz. And so uh, he worked there as, as a wheel dealer, as a roulette wheel dealer, and then he moved up into management. But he said, you know, uh, I got out of the Marines and I was a sniper, and, uh, uh, and we worked in these two-man crews, I think he told me about. There was 50 of them, and they went around the world and did work for a secret part of our government. It wasn't the CIA. It was, it was the, the, the general was Chesty Puller, who, uh, and they were, they were based down in, in uh, I believe, can, Louisiana. Can, can, hold that thought, Gino, because we, we, we had to go to commercial break again. You're listening to the Donald, you're listening to the, you're to the Conspiracy Show with guest host Don Jeffries. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. I'm Don Jeffries, filling in for Richard Serrett, who will return Sunday, November 7th. Uh, Gino, go ahead. Before you were uh, interrupted, you were talking about Jack Ruby and his interesting connections. Yeah, so this fellow that I knew got out of the Marines like in like 1949. He was, uh, he was basically a, uh, a sharpshooter and part of a special squad that worked for a general called Chesty Puller. And after that, he, you know, he did, he went to work down in Alabama and he got in trouble in North Carolina. And then he finally got, uh, I guess for doing some moonshine and he finally, uh, ran into a guy in Phoenix city, Alabama, and they put him to work in, in, in a casino there. And, uh, he learned the games, learned the 21 game, learned how to deal the, the roulette wheel. We call the wheel and craps. And, uh, you know, after being there a while, uh, you know, in Las Vegas, they didn't have dealing schools in those days. You know, either you worked in a, in a legal casino somewhere, you learned the game that way, or a friend taught you. But Mo Dale at the, at the uh, Desert Inn, I think it was 1953 or so, uh, could have been 54, needed a, a couple of wheel dealers. So he called his friend in Phoenix City, Alabama, uh, who ran a casino, and he says, you know, he's looking for a dealer. Do you have anybody that you can recommend and send out here? We need some dealers. And he says, yeah, we got a guy. I got a good guy, and he's 
can handle a wheel good. He's a perfect guy for you. And he's got another bonus, this guy said. Uh, and, he, and he said, he, I guess Mo Davis said, yeah, what is it? He said a rifle. He was a sharpshooter. You know, they kind of chuckled at that. And so that was that. He sent him out there. And, and this was about 53, I believe it was. So, you know, he went into the Desert Inn and got his apron, signed in, and went to work that next day. And, uh, you know, before Dalitz would come up and introduce himself, he wanted to see if the guy could deal okay. And he could deal fine. He was a fabulous dealer. And so uh, Dalitz introduces himself to him. And he says, my friend in Phoenix City said you, you were a pretty good sharpshooter. He said, oh, he said, yes, sir, I was in the Marines and I did this and did that. And he says, well, why don't you go out in the desert one afternoon and shoot a couple of soda cans or something? You know, kind of joking with him. And he says, yeah, I'd love to do that. Now, you got to remember, in 53, you could walk outside the desert in hotel. That's the desert. You know, you didn't have to walk, go 20 miles to find a place to shoot guns. You know, people did that in those days. So they went out in the desert, you know, maybe half a mile from the desert in. And they set up a, a quarter and he, he popped it, and then he says, let, let me put a dime up, and he popped that. He says, that's pretty good. Uh, he said, you're a pretty good shot. He said, uh, uh, "He said that might be a bonus in years to come. Uh, do you have any qualms about shooting somebody if they deserved it? <laughs> he said, well, he answered, well, if they deserved it, maybe. But he says, you know, I don't do, I have a couple of rules. He says, you know, I never did a kid, never did a woman. I've uh, never hurt a woman or a kid in my life, and I wouldn't do it, you know, to this day. Just wouldn't do it. Uh, what if you had to protect yourself? Uh, you know, basically, he says, well, that's a different story. Just to go out and assassinate them, I wouldn't do that. So basically, you know, uh, that was that. So nothing ever came of it, but uh, he was promoted to a more of like a director in the hotel eventually and did special assignments for Mo Dalitz, uh doing errands, various things. And uh, a few years went by, and, and, and one day uh, Modell was sent out to, to get some information, and uh, this gentleman came back, and he was told that Modellus was in the country club on the second floor in, in a meeting, and to go over there and, and bring, it, bring it to him. So he goes to the, sec- to the, the entrance of the second floor, and there's two guys kind of watching the gate, and uh, they wouldn't let him go up, and, and so they said, we'll go up and tell Mr. Dalitz you're here. He did, and Dalitz had sent him up. So he went up there, and uh, uh, Dalitz says, I want you to meet some people here. Uh, and uh, Dalitz opened the, the doors of this little small boardroom, and, uh, and Dalitz said to this group of guys, he says, this is uh, so-and-so. just wanted you to see who he is and say hello, and we'll talk to you a little later. And he scooted this gentleman out. Well, this anonymous person said he looked in the room, and uh, at the at the uh, table, and he recognized a couple of faces. Now, this was uh, this, this was incredible to me. One was uh, Sam Giancana, the other one was Nick Savella, and the third one, which I thought pretty wild, was Lyndon Johnson, and he was wow. a vice vice president then. Now mm-hmm. you know. The guy told me the story, and uh, and uh, that was that. So then, a couple of days later, uh, Dalitz calls the gentleman back up, and he says, uh, "How do you feel about that?" He says, "Well, he says, you know, like I said, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't shoot a woman, and I wouldn't shoot a kid." And he says, oh, okay, and that was the end of it. Now, what's crazy about this is that I 
I finished my interview with a gentleman, and uh, I, I said, I would like to do another interview with you a couple days later. And he let me do it again, and I taped it with his permission. And he never missed a beat. And then uh, uh, it was incredible. And I, I searched my notes, and I looked at the, listened to the tape, and it was impe- impeccable. And then, just by chance, Mo Davis's daughter, uh, who's still around, she was in town, and I, I called her up, and I said, I'd like you to come over, and I want you to listen to this and meet this gentleman. And he, he met her, and in my office, he repeated the story. He never missed a beat. It was exactly the same, and she didn't, didn't you know, uh, take, was taken back. She wasn't upset. She just listened. And... Uh, so, you know, it was a really an incredible story. Now, I then went to the Presidential Library of Lyndon Johnson, and I looked up his di- daily diary, and he did go to the Desert Inn Hotel, and I believe he stayed in room 340. He also visited the Tropicana, which at that time was owned by, partially owned by Marcello, Carlos Marcello of Louisiana. He was one of the biggest investors there. And Roselli, Johnny Roselli, uh, who was hired by Robert Mayhew to kill Castro uh, with Giancana, uh, was also involved in the Tropicana. So, you know, who knows what Dalitz had in mind? So that's the question. But I thought I'd tell you the story, and I thought it was very interesting. So and then it brings, you know, the connection between Dalitz and Hoffa now are very, very close. It's extremely close. And so I always thought that this could have been something that could have been nothing, but it's my inclination. I think that uh, I believe what the gentleman told me. Uh, he's still alive. He's quite elderly. But um, I thought it would be remiss of me if I didn't include this in this book. And uh, that's where it is, uh, Don. Well, that's great. And uh, give us, because we, we only have a few minutes left, and I want to give you time at the end to promote. Give us one more. Do you have a, one more quick story from the book that, uh, that yeah. would, is especially fascinating? I'll, I'll give you one real quick one. It's, it was, uh, there was, there's many great uh, stories in the book that are just funny and just a lot of fun, and there's a lot of detailed stuff that you couldn't even repeat. It took me 10 hours to repeat it to you. But there was a great story. You know, one day I went in to get my shoes shined in the men's room, and uh, I was in the Baccarat pit, took my jacket off, and got up on the little pedestal, and the guy shining my shoes. And in comes one of the shift managers in the 21 pit, uh, who used to be my boss. And it, then, after he comes in, here comes a host that was working for the casino that they didn't get along. These two guys didn't like each other. I mean, to the point they hated each other. So they're both washing their hands, and they're looking at each other in the mirror, kind of like triangulation. And, and I'm about five feet away on the stand, and one guy says to the other guy something smart, the other guy says something back smart, pretty soon they're pushing each other, one guy reaches in his pocket, pulls out a gun, and somebody yelled gun, and he hit the other guy in the head, blood squirting all over the place, I'm trying to duck, the shoeshine guy left the, the rag on my foot, and, I'm, you know, and I can't do anything. Anyway, in came in the casino manager, they, they took the guy away, they fired him, and that was that. And oh, for one incredible. year... That's a- yeah. One year, the shift manager was mad at me because I didn't take the gun away. And by the way, can I give my website? Absolutely. Go, go ahead. Give, give, tell the folks where they can reach you and uh, promote anything yeah. you want to promote. Uh, the book can be purchased at trineday.com. That's T-R-I-N-E-D-A-Y.com. 
And uh, my website is Gino Munari, G-E-N-O-M-U-N-A-R-I.com. That's G-E-N-O-M-U-N-A-R-I.com. And, uh, God, I, I think we're out of time. Is that right, uh, Don? Well, we, we still have about a minute, so just wait. wait, wait you, you, you can go ahead. You can say something else. Yeah, so, you know, the book, uh, it's full, over 470 pages, fully indexed. And there's things in the book uh, I wish we had time to get into. Uh, an assassination attempt of one of the other casino owners, uh, skimming, uh, funny things that happen, stories that are just incredible, how the dunes uh, finally closed, and uh, some inside information that's never been revealed anywhere else. And uh, my purpose wasn't really to, to make a million dollars with this, but I wanted to tell the true story, and perhaps maybe one day I can take this... To a, a nice series for television, this would be a great thing. Oh, well, I, I think it would be great too. But so, and the book is Las Vegas Dunes Hotel Casino and Country Club: The Mob, The Connections, The Story. Gino Minari, thank you very much. Thank thanks you, to Don. technical producer Owen Wolf. And thank you. Te- thanks to protect technical producer Owen Wolf and live stream producer Ryan Wait. Next week on the show, special guest host Ali Siadatan with Jonathan Kahn, author of Harbinger Two: The Return. I'm Don Jeffries. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.